sometimes uh, funny stories about my grandchildren creep into my sermons totally by accident. I want to tell you about Elijah, my four-year-old grandson up in New York. The way that he gets dressed every morning is he puts on his underpants and then he arms himself with knives and guns. Um, That is little plastic sticks and wooden spoons. And then he puts on his pants. And he goes out, out about his day fully prepared as a man to meet whatever is coming. And uh, when Bessie was up there recently visiting uh, Rebecca and uh, the children were going to uh, visit the house of one of Rebecca's friends. And as Elijah was entering the door, he stopped and he looked at the lady of the house. And his question was this, excuse me, are weapons allowed in this house? Since they live in New York, there's no telling how long it will be before he's arrested for carrying a concealed wooden spoon. <laughs> well, today is Mother's Day, and, and I'm very thankful for the mothers here. I'm thankful for my, mo- my mom, who loved Jesus in front of me all of her life, and uh, who didn't believe all the bad reports that she was told about me, even though they were true, and even though I told her they were true, she still didn't believe them. I'm I'm also especially thankful for the mother of my children who did believe them and who loves me unconditionally anyway and who is the best of the best of the best. Uh, I'm taking a break from Romans today, but not necessarily in a direction that you would expect. Um. This message is not about Mother's Day. In, in one sense, you could say that it's about divine parenting, but I would really be shoehorning that in to say that this is a Mother's Day message. Uh, it's really about suffering. It's been on my heart, and I wanted to take this day to talk about it. When I, I told Bessie as we were driving up, this is not a Mother's Day message, it's about suffering, she said, then it is a Mother's Day message. <laughs> okay. But there are some verses in Hebrews 12 that I've been thinking about for a while, mainly because of some of the hard things that have been going on in our church family. Uh, Especially this last year up to today. So I'd I'd invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. There are some verses in here that have to do with parenting indirectly, with God as our parent. Let's take a look at Hebrews 12, verses 9 through 11. Hebrews 12, verse 9. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, that is our earthly parents, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. And there's, the, there's really a wonderful statement. Our parents discipline us. We're in their house for a short time. And they are not going to be perfect. God cuts, them some, cuts us some slack here. They discipline us. This is talking about good parents, not wicked parents. I know there are some of those. But good parents who want to follow the Lord, discipline their children, 
Not perfectly, but as seemed best to them. And God is fine with that. But he is our heavenly father. Disciplines us for our good. Implied not just for a short time, but always. So that, here's the purpose of it, we may share his holiness. So the question comes to me, Gary, do you really want holiness? Because it's connected to suffering. The next verse says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. I think everybody here could say, yeah, (laughs) we've been there. We're We understand that. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, and and he's taking all the suffering that could possibly come into your life and putting it under the umbrella of that from which we can learn. To those who have been trained by it. Afterwards, not in the moment, I love the way he says this, afterwards, it's rare that it happens in the moment. But afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I love that. These verses are embedded in a passage that deals with with suffering and how a loving father can permit that. It, It even describes suffering as a part of God's plan, producing holiness in us. We have a list of people that we're praying for. I hope that you get our weekly update. Our midweek announcer always has a prayer list in it. And we send out prayer requests uh, frequently uh, from our, within our church family. But um, we've been praying for cancer treatments and broken wrists and children who've buried parents, parents who've buried children, uh, debilitating arthritis, lost jobs, uh, family problems, with wayward children, family problems with ornery elderly parents, (laughs) Um, people who are sitting here now with chronic diseases, and the list goes on and on. And my question is, Lord, how can you not only be a loving heavenly father, but also our, our sovereign Lord who permits all these things, because if he's not, if he's sovereign, then that means this does come through his hands. If God is all good and if God is all powerful, a worst case interpretation would ask, okay, is he guilty of child abuse? Or at the least of neglect? Because the suffering that our heavenly father permits is sometimes really hard to bear. Now we can say, well, these are all a part of, these things are a part of living in a fallen, broken world. And I'll, I'll be the first to agree. But see, I also know, and I'll get real personal here. I don't try to mention this too much, but I also know, for example, that when my sister got suddenly sick and died months ago, um, that God could have prevented it, but he didn't. Did he hear my prayers? Yes. Did he answer them? Not in the way I asked. Am I at peace? Yes, I am. 
But why do we have peace and comfort in the midst of pain and suffering? So today's message, this, this study today in Hebrews 12 is about mothers and fathers. And all of us who are God's children through faith in Jesus Christ. Because when we're saved, God adopts us as his sons and daughters. Romans 8.15 says, You have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So, what do we expect from a heavenly father? Ice cream, all the time, right? What do we expect from a heavenly father? Well, yes, many wonderful things, which we've studied in Romans 5, and the last one we studied was the security of unconditional, eternal love. We expect a heavenly home. We expect... We expect a family, a church family, an eternal family, the family of God. And, and there are other passages that speak of how we are heirs of God's blessings. But there is another side to this coin that sometimes feels like it's a dark side, at least from our view. And, and that's, that's because we still endure this life in this fallen world. And God rarely intervenes to change our circumstances. Now, sometimes he does. But that's not the norm. He rarely intervenes to change our circumstances in this world of sin and disease. Christians die in car wrecks and get cancer. Instead of God jumping in to fix things, Scripture says God uses those hard things to train us in holiness because for God, the goal of life is not life. The goal of life is eternity. And I've got to grab onto that and hold on to that. And that is hard. It's hard to process. But I think Hebrews 12 helps us here. So first, let me tell you a little bit about the book of Hebrews, because if you're a visitor, you know, we love context here. We, we just love it. So let me talk a little bit about about the, the book of Hebrews. And, and I have an outline of, of the book a little bit in, in, in your bulletin notes. The book was written to Jewish Christians who were just about at the brink of going through, they were seeing persecution on the horizon. It was Rome, the Roman Empire was turning its imperial gaze on them. And in light of imminent persecution, there were many who were tempted to return back to Judaism, which was a, a, a regarded by Rome as what they called a religio licita, a legal religion. It was safe. They could be a Jew and be safe. Christianity was a religio illicita. It was an illegal religion after a while. So Hebrews is actual. The book of Hebrews is a doctrinal argument telling them not to turn away from the Lord, telling them to remain true. Don't go back into Judaism. It's interesting. In the midst of persecution and pain and suffering, apparently doctrine is practical. So that's what this book is about. And, and this, this book teaches in chapter 1, Jesus is superior to the prophets. He's the subject and the object of their prophecies. Jesus is superior to the angels in chapters 1 and 2. They didn't die for your sins. Jesus did. Angels were Jesus' support system. Jesus is superior to Moses in chapters 3 and 4. He is the destination for our spiritual wanderings. He is the promised land. He is our final resting place. Moses spoke of him. 
Jesus is superior to the Aaronic priesthood, the priesthood of Aaron in chapters 5 through 10. He is the fulfillment of those feasts. He is the final sacrifice. He is now our great high priest who loves and intercedes for us. So Hebrews, in the middle of these trials and tests and pain and suffering, stand firm for truth. And these these truths are as this book makes the case, deeply anchored in Scripture. They point over and over again, that make the point over and over again that the entire Old Testament points to Jesus. That's, that's the story of the Bible. It's the point of the book, especially chapters 1 through 10. That's Hebrews 1 through 10. But if you look at the book, Hebrews has 13 chapters. What about chapters, uh, what, what about, uh, chapters 11, 12, and 13, the last three chapters? Well, we're familiar with three famous words, faith, hope, and love, right? Faith, hope, and love. We talked about this not long ago. We talked about this when we were looking at Romans 5, 1 through 8. And I've mentioned this several times for you. I I believe these words are gauges of spiritual maturity, of growing in the Lord. We see them several times. And, and they're clustered together. If you look in your bulletin, I, I put all the ones together that I've seen in the Bible. But you, you see them. In, in, of course, we're familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But now abide faith, hope, and love. These three and the greatest of these is love. We're familiar with that, that, with that, uh, that verse. But it's also found in Romans 5, 1 through 8. It's found in Galatians 5, in Ephesians 1, in Colossians 1, in 1 Thessalonians 1, in 1 Thessalonians 5, in 2 Thessalonians 1, 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 Peter chapter 1. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. It's twice in Hebrews, and I want you to see this. Hebrews chapter 6, Just we'll just read the first one without much comment or any comment. Hebrews 6, right into the middle of a context, Look at verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now look with me at chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. And this is the close of the doctrinal argument of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10 actually will start in verse 19. Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we have access into his presence by a new and living way, which he inaugurated through the veil that is his flesh. And here's the second sense. And since... We have a great high priest over the house of God. So since we have access, since we have this intermediary, Jesus, who stands there for us, making intercession for us, since we have those two things, let us, let us, let us, three times repeated, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us. Hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, then there is a warning section 
And guess what happens next? Hebrews chapter 11. Look at the first two words in most of those verses. We just sang it. What are the first two words? By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Over and over again. Verses 1 to 3 describe the meaning of faith. Verses 4 through 40 give examples of faith. Abraham being the greatest of the examples of faith. Over and over again, just illustrating faith. And then chapter 12. Hebrews 12 is the faith chapter. What do you think chapter 12 would be? It's, it, even though the word doesn't occur, the concept definition is all the way through it. Hebrews chapter 12 is all about hope. And then chapter 13, the first verse, let love of the brethren continue. And then describes how love is to be manifested, first of all, with one another, and then secondly, towards God. So Hebrews 11, faith. Hebrews 12, hope. Hebrews 13, love. Almost as if it were planned. Now, my focus this morning is on Hebrews 12, but we have to back up a little bit into chapter 11. Chapter 11 describes great victories of faith, but it also describes great defeats, not of faith, but at least in terms of the things that happen in this life. Look at with me. um, Well, we're going to start looking in in verse 29 in just a moment. But it describes men and women whose faith was rewarded in this life. But it also describes those whose lives were devastated. But they chose to trust no matter what in a loving heavenly father. And they died in that faith. I would love to have everything that we pray for have the outcome of a great observable victory. That would be nice. Then we could just have the atheist friends we just point to that. But that's not the way life is. You wouldn't need faith then. In fact, it's rarely like that. Okay, chapter 11, look at verse 29. You have to see this. Verse 29. And again, I'm jumping in the middle of the story. But after listing several things that are exemplars of faith, verse 29. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land. And the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. See, victory, victory. Verse 31, by faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in place. Victory. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. And those are four judges, all of whom had huge problems in their personal lives. But they had great moments of faith. Some had lives of faith, but some of them just had moments of faith. But they were great. So Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. Who do you think is referred to there? Yeah, Daniel. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong. Who do you think that would refer to? From weakness were made strong. Samson. Became mighty in war. Put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Stop right there. Oops. Sorry, didn't mean to wake and comfort you. <laughs> received. Okay, so all of those you could describe as wonderful victories 
of faith, couldn't you? Look at that. And they saw the results in their lifetime. But the rest of the verse, verse 35 continues, and others, others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better, better resurrection than an eternal view. And others experienced mockings and scourgings. Yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Tradition says that's how Isaiah died. They were tempted. They were put to death in the, with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Now, there's so much to explore there. But the point is, all of these were people of faith. And in, chapter, and in the next chapter, he's about to connect the dots. How do you grow in faith? Suffering. Last year, I, I, I taught on the biblical idea of hope, and I defined it this way. Hope is a future certainty grounded in a past reality that results in a present mentality. Hope is a future certainty that is my, my eternal destiny. Grounded in a past reality, Jesus Christ's work on the cross is sacrifice for me. That results in my present mentality of, of confidence, of contentment, of peace. But that present mentality is not vague sentimentality. It's not a vague generality. It's a specific blessing from God to enable you to endure. This is not, this is not about feeling victorious. Okay? Because you may not. This is not about feeling victorious. It's about trusting and loving God in the midst of the circumstances. So let's look at how Hebrews 12 helps us in the crucible of suffering. Again, the outline is, is, is in your, your bulletin notes. But look at verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also... Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. He doesn't say run with speed. He's not talking about a sprint. He's talking about life as a marathon, a hard marathon. Run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Abraham. Oh, I'm sorry, that's wrong. That's what you might expect if you'd never read this before and saw how Abraham was put forth as the exemplar of faith in Hebrews 11. But every person in Hebrews 11 fell short. There's only one person who's never fallen short. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. The author, he's the initiator, and perfecter, he's the one who's going to bring it to completion, to fruition. The author, the beginner, and the ender, the closer of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There is so much in here. For example, just that last phrase, sat down, is, just, is a whole argument 
from the last five chapters of the book about how Jesus has completed his high priestly work. The high priest doesn't sit down, but Jesus does. You know, it's just, it, all kinds of rich analogies are drawn from the Old Testament here. So there's a lot behind the statements that are made here. But we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, what does that mean? The reference to the people in Hebrews 11, or the references to the people in Hebrews 11. Now, since we're surrounded, therefore, by such a great cloud of witnesses, many people say, oh, well, their lives are witnesses to us. And that's true. Their lives are witnesses to us. They've run the race well. They're examples of faith that are held up to us. But I believe they are also witnesses of us. Because the picture that's here, I mean, I, I doubt that those in the Lord's presence are totally uninvolved with that which they had been involved with here on earth. I, I, I suspect also that we will know more in heaven than we know here, right? Now we see through glass darkly, but then. And I also want to call your attention to the fact that the, this is the image of a race with spectators in a surrounding arena. So it's when sometimes people say, do, do you think that grandma knows what's happened? Yeah, I do. I do. Do you mean that mama knows when I did that sin? Well, maybe the focus should be more on does Jesus know when you did that sin? <laughs> but yeah, mama knows too. So uh, at, at any rate, I, I'm just. There are these witnesses surrounding us witnesses to us probably witnesses of us who have run the race with endurance and the call on us is to run the race with endurance putting aside those things that might encumber us you know when you when you get to the starting line warm-up clothes are good there's they're not intrinsically evil but they're encumbrances and we shed things that hinder our race so we get rid of things, definitely get rid of sins. But we also get rid of things that might hinder our walk with the Lord and run the race with faithfulness, fixing our eyes on Jesus. People are are impressed by the ways in which we run the race over the long haul. You know, the people that you work with may be impressed by the excellence of your work. I know that they would definitely notice if you were a slacker. But they may be impressed by the excellence of your work because you work, Colossians 3, as unto the Lord. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve in your, in your labor. But they will definitely notice long-term integrity. They will definitely notice the way that you speak about your husband, the way that you speak about your wife publicly. They will definitely notice your attitudes towards hard things that come into your life. So run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Here it is. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. I love that translation. It's very good. Uh, you could just put it this way. Riveting your eyes on Jesus. This refers to looking at Jesus in a certain way. The, the word is intensive. What it, what it means is it's not merely a glance. You're not just glancing at Jesus. Okay? 
You're not just saying, good morning, Jesus. I'm going to glance at you and get on about my day. It's, it's, it's a gaze where you rivet your eyes, you focus on him and engage in who he is. Secondly, it's continuous. Once your gaze is placed there, keep it there. Don't look from side to side. It's kind of like, remember the image of Peter walking on water, coming out to Jesus, and he takes his eyes off Jesus. What does he do? He's, yeah, he's going down. So, no, keep your eyes on Jesus. So it's intensive, it's continuous, and it's exclusive. And by that, I mean you are excluding everything else from your field of vision. Your eye is on him. He is the tape. He is the finish line. When Usain Bolt runs the 100-meter dash, he doesn't stop to look side to side or he doesn't pause. That, that'll just get him off of his stride. Don't compare with others because you'll lose focus and abort your race. We have a tendency to want to compare with others in the race. And, and this is a different kind of race. We want to look at see how they're doing. But if you fix your eyes on other runners, or if you even stop to look around at the other runners, one of two things will happen. Number one, you'll become self-inflated because you're ahead of them. And that's not good for your soul. Or number two, you'll become discouraged because they're ahead of you. And that's not good for your soul. This is a race in which we are not in competition with anyone. It is our race to run before the Lord with endurance as faithfully as we can. And all the other runners, we leave them to the Lord's hands. It's to their own master. They stand or fall. So what have I said so far? First of all, concentrate on the sun. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Now look at verses 3 and 4. Consider the Son and compare with His sufferings. Look at verse 3. For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. The persecution that the Hebrew readers were about to undergo hadn't happened yet but it was coming but the point here is not to engage in a suffering olympics okay um you will never ever go through the suffering of gethsemane where jesus prayed before the father We will never, ever experience the suffering of Golgotha on the cross. We will never undergo what he did when he absorbed all the evil, the sin, the disease, all of moral and natural evil, the brokenness of this fallen world, sucked that into himself and dealt with the problem of evil once and for all. We will never suffer like that. Sin is an infinite evil, and only an infinite being could pay the wages of sin for finite beings, which means Jesus embraced infinite suffering. So as you fix your eyes on Jesus, consider what he has done. Not not to compare in the sense of saying, boy, you think you've got it bad. Look at what Jesus... That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about resting 
in the choice that Jesus made to suffer for you? What does that speak to you about his love for you? How does that speak to you about his care for you as as his child coming to him and saying, Abba, Father, how does that speak to you? The love of the Father, of the Son, of the Spirit. So consider the Son and compare with his sufferings. And and then the verses 5 and following, remember that you are his sons and daughters. Let's take a look at at these verses. Again, there's just so much here. But uh, verse 5. You have not forgotten the exhortation that is addressed to you as sons, right? We're adopted children. And then he describes three possible reactions to discipline. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor, in the other direction, faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. So, There are three possible reactions to discipline. First of all, you regard it lightly. Some might treat it indifferently. Eh, No big deal. It is a big deal. On the other hand, some might faint when you're approved by him. That is, some become overwhelmed by it and, and, and feel, you know, God has abandoned me. And that's not true either. But then there are those who understand, who rejoice that this verifies their sonship. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Look at verse 7. It's for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And then here's the verse again. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. Because in God's sovereignty, nothing in my my life is wasted. Nothing. So that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, trained by it. Afterwards, not necessarily in the moment, it takes time to reflect, to see, to get your spirit in the place where it needs to be. Afterwards, it reveals the peaceful fruit of righteousness. That's how that holiness is gained. So look at the contrast here with Jesus. He was sinless. We're not. Yet he suffered in our place. And I want you to think about that. Was it fair? Was it fair for Jesus to suffer in your place? Was that fair? A, yes, B, no. I got time. No, it's not. It wasn't fair. Wasn't fair to him for for sure. Not only did he suffer for a sin or for sin, he suffered the entire composite of human misery, our misery, not just our sins, but our griefs and our sorrows, as Isaiah 53 says. And, And that's unfairness magnified to infinity. So it's unfair. It's infinitely unfair. And I want you to consider this. 
He chose this plan. We didn't choose it. We certainly wouldn't choose it for ourselves. But God not only allowed, but ordained a plan which would result in the best of all possible worlds for us, knowing that he himself would become the chief victim of his own plan. He chose, he embraced the unfairness. In other words, looking into Jesus does not mean that you deny that you have grief, that you deny that you have pain, nor is it, it does not diminish that pain by comparison with his, his suffering, but rather it's an affirmation, my Lord understands. My Lord, he understands. Turn back with me to chapter 4, Hebrews 4. Look at verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is not just talking about drawing near to the Lord for salvation. This is talking about drawing near him for daily living, for grace to help in time of need. I've been, I have began our reading with the book of Lamentations, and I'm, I'm going to have to hurry up here a little bit. Uh, so Jeremiah's circumstances were miserable. Everybody, everything that he had was burning up in Jerusalem. Every person that he knew was either murdered now or being dragged off into servitude in Assyria. So he, he was looking at this, and his own future was, was definitely not promising. Was he going to live or die? Would he be tortured? What was his future going to look like? I, I mean, are you hearing any good choices here? So that's what Jeremiah was dealing with. And, it, and it's a case of hope lost. Remember how he felt in the first... Verses of Lamentations 3, verses hope regained. What did he do? He began to look unto Yahweh. He began to look unto the Lord. He began to fix his eyes on who God is. Did his circumstances change? Not one whit. But his view of his circumstances changed in light of the fact of the greatness of who God is. Looking unto Jesus the author and perfecter of faith. Hope is not a spiritual band-aid that ignores a problem or pretends it's not so bad because it is bad. But for Jeremiah, it was being loved by the God of the universe who held his eternity, his eternity in his hands. And that was enough. I love the statement by Job. Uh, I'm just going to read it to you. That... Uh, uh, the statement that Job made. I know the book of Job is in here somewhere. I preached through the book of Job, but it left my Bible. Here it is. All right. Job 42, at the end of the book, Job, who is the most righteous man on the face of the planet, 
now says this. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now. After he's gone through these things, my eye sees you. And I repent in dust and ashes. (laughs) Of what does Job have to repent? Not much. But he sees God in his glory. He does repent of his attitude. But do you see what's happened here? It's it's the diff- it's where you're as we walk with the Lord. It's the way in which God sets our default. Our default needs to become looking unto Jesus. That needs to be our default place where we go. Looking unto Jesus, not looking at the circumstances, not looking at other people who are running the race, looking unto Jesus, resetting our default. So we saturate ourselves with Scripture and we ask ourselves questions as we go through life. What can I learn from this? Here's a question that I mention to you from time to time because I ask it of myself quite frequently. Do I interpret Christ's love by my circumstances or do I interpret my circumstances by Christ's love? Do I interpret Christ's love by my circumstances so that things are going well, Jesus loves me? Or do I interpret my circumstances by Christ's love? Jesus loves me, therefore, this is in his plan. What testimony can my life teach others through this? Because suffering is the greatest witnessing tool you will ever have before a watching world, and they are watching. How can God be glorified through this? Because the presence of evil screams to us, screams to believers and unbelievers alike that something's wrong with this world, that it's not as it came from the hand of God. Something happened, and it's broken. So it's not as it should be. So how do I glorify God in the circumstances? There's a common phrase that people use, under the circumstances. How are you doing? I'm fine. Under the circumstances. And I used to say years ago that hope was what enables us to live above the circumstances. I've come to the conclusion that that's not a good way to say it. Because none of us really lives above the circumstances in a way that implies we're so victorious that the circumstances become negligible to us. Because they don't. Hope is what enables us to live in the circumstances. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. And this this challenge of looking unto Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus is written to these believers, the Hebrews, before the big suffering started, before the big persecution was initiated. Why? Because he wanted them to develop this this understanding of who Jesus is, the whole argument of the book, about how life is lived by faith, chapter 11, and then chapter 12, fixing your eyes on Jesus. You run with endurance the race that is set before you, and you get that set as your default before the persecution starts, hopefully before the suffering starts, because it will start. Every single person in this room, unless the Lord comes back, we're going to get sick and die. Every single person in this room. Now, when Jesus comes, that'll be great. I am looking forward to that. But 
we will all suffer in one way or another. So before it begins or before it becomes so intense, we're not looking to him at all. Rivet your eyes on Jesus, because when you enter a place of suffering, you're not always going to be thinking rationally. Everything comes back to the stake that you nailed down, looking unto Jesus, fixing your eyes on Jesus, because there are times when you're not going to be thinking, you're just going to be feeling. <laughs> so what's your default? Over the last few weeks, I've been with a dear friend of mine uh, in the hospital and then at Siskin. He and I have been close ever since uh, we were five years old. We, we have, have pictures in my car I was going to take to him where uh, we were in each other's weddings and I've got pictures from when we were five uh, uh, to take to him that we found. Um, but uh, he's been my oldest, my friend, the longest, you know, over 60 years. And so uh, we, uh, uh, we know each other pretty well. And he has been suffering horrific pain, just excruciating pain. And it's been, it's been awful. And there, there are times, well, I, I was with him last week, and he said, uh, I'm much closer to Jesus now. It took this, but I'm going to live for the Lord. Now, <laughs> I thought by all appearances he was living for the Lord. <laughs> but he'd come to that Job place. I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. He's moved from a two-dimensional to a three-dimensional experience with his Lord. And I remember in the hospital with him when um, there were days when he couldn't say anything but one word. And this is what he would say over and over again. Jesus. 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 Fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. The old hymn is true. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. And thank you for Jesus. And may our eyes be riveted to him. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen.